want to thank Emmett for teaching the last couple of weeks out of Romans 1. Appreciate you very much, Emmett, and thank you for the good instruction. And uh, I know it was appreciated by those who were here. And it's we're so blessed to have those in our congregation who teach the Word and do so such a good job of it. We appreciate Emmett and his good work here. Um, I'm going to come out and say it so you can hold me to it. My plan and my hope is that our 10-week study of Revelation <laughs> that we started seven months ago will come to an end this month. So that's we may have to add another Wednesday to the month of June, but I think we're going to make it uh, one way or the other. Appreciate all of you hanging in there with me on this. And uh, tonight our goal will be... Uh, It's not a very long one in terms of text, but we've got a little bit of background to set for this last section in the book of Revelation. I've I've been thinking a lot about this little piece of the book, because um, as we've worked our way through uh, the text, we we have viewed it as a clash between a worldly empire who oppresses the people of God and essentially in in our context of the book here, the Roman Empire, and the church, especially the church of the first century, who's receiving word of encouragement and of ultimate victory and the promise of ultimate victory. Uh, As that story has unfolded through the chapters uh, of the vision, um, we uh, we have seen that conflict kind of come to a peak And at the end of the book, we see the battle essentially come to an end. And, of course, the end of the book, and really the theme, in a sense, of the book, is the victory of God's people against every enemy, particularly in the book of Revelation, as as it reveals the victory of the church over the Roman Empire and the oppression brought about the church in the early days, Uh, but also then a message or a theme of victory for God's people throughout all of the ages. And so the dust is kind of settled when we get to this point in the book. And I've I've used an illustration, and I want to hit it one more time tonight, um, because I've I've been thinking about this, and I find it helpful in understanding this section and the relationship between these four little pieces that fit together here. Consider any... uh, any particular scene, any moment in history, any particular scene, it can be any, it does anything at all, and imagine at the same time, from different perspectives and vantage points, four photographs are taken of that event. It may be an event like D-Day taking place over a huge span where you have people in very many different places, a lot of different things going on, but just imagine four snapshots, four photographs are taken at the same time. None of them look the same because they have, different, they have a different subject in the photograph. They're, they're of the same major event. They're all talking about the same thing. But they're, whatever, however it is, they're portraying a reality or a different view of it from, from the other. If you, if you can kind of consider that, I think what we have here in Revelation, we have essentially four, if you will, photographs being taken each of which is saying something about the victory of the church over her enemies. When we read, especially as we read through this section, we, we tend to read sequentially. Because when we read a story, it's moving in time. 
you start at the beginning and you read through to the end and you're moving, you're moving through time. I think it might be helpful to consider these four photographs being taken at the same moment. They're all taken at the same time. They're all saying something about the same event. But the photographs are different. And because of that, the photographs are saying something different about the victory of the church over her enemies. I'm hoping that that the... uh, My illustration isn't confusing uh, before I get to the explanation of it. We've gone over this before, but if you can consider that, rather than, okay, we have the thousand years, then after that this happens, and then after that this happens, and then after that this happens, if you could kind of see or, or think of these or consider each of these as images that are all saying spiritual truth, they're all revealing a particular spiritual truth about the victory of the church, over the Roman Empire. And each of them are, are revealing something slightly different than one another. They're taken from different perspectives or angles. So then in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, the picture, the snapshot, is this whole thousand-year thing where the saints are reigning and where Satan is bound and the rest of the dead are dead. What are we being told in that snapshot? That snapshot saying, when the dust settles... When the, when the battle between the Roman Empire and the church is over, we have a complete victory of God's people and the complete defeat of Satan and his forces. The complete the, the, is, of course, in that number 1,000, the 1,000 years. So this is, this is just a little snapshot that says, okay, the battle's over. What does this picture tell us? This picture tells us Rome is absolutely completed completely defeated, the dragon Satan can no longer work through Rome to attack the people of God, and God's people reign with him in complete victory over their would-be oppressors. Then we have another snapshot of this weird little battle scene that, that has its roots in the book of Ezekiel, this battle of Gog and Magog, where we have this massive army come up against the church, and Jesus just basically destroys them in an instant. There is no fight. There is no battle. And that image, uh, based on the same battle back in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, is just saying no matter what happens after the fall of this enemy, God's people are assured a final victory over any future enemy. Any future foe that comes against the church, this little snapshot says the church will win, the church will be victorious, and any any force that ever attacks the church, it will be judged and done away with, and the church will never be defeated. That's essentially that snapshot. This, the great white throne judgment in, in chapter 20, takes us back to deal with some unfinished business from this snapshot. Because here we were told that the rest of the dead, those that worshipped the dragon and the beast, have been dead for a thousand years. And in this snapshot, we see them coming to life, but they're coming to life only to be judged, and we see that their fate, the fate of the rest of the dead, is utter destruction. So that the snapshot here is telling us, anyone who worshipped the beast or the dragon, their fate is utter destruction. Um, And tonight we come to the fourth snapshot. The fourth snapshot that we find in, in this little series is of a new heaven and new earth in chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. And what this image is saying to us, almost in a sense, 
uh, a simultaneous truth is that the church is triumphant. This is a picture of the church in her triumph and in her, uh, uh, well, in a new heaven and new earth. And hopefully that image will make a little bit more sense as we, uh, as we proceed tonight. I'm hoping that's a little bit helpful to think of these as just four, like looking at the same, and I guess D-Day is a pretty good thing. D-Day is tomorrow, right? 75, can you believe it? 75 years tomorrow for D-Day. And uh, imagine pictures being taken of the Allied defenders in, in London, Eisenhower and Churchill, or whoever, just all, and all of these things are being taken of the same, the same sort of reality, but each, each photograph saying something different. Mylon? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's a very good question, Mylon. Don't ever apologize for asking questions, please. That, that's a very good question. Because uh, Mylon's saying he knows we, we, the thousand years, we're not looking at that as a, a, a thousand year period that's taking place here. But he's saying, is it any period of time? Or is it just, is it like pinpointing uh, uh, kind of the destruction of Rome? And I think the best, maybe the best way I could answer is that each of these, of course, is also an image it is it's language that's not taken literally um, Gog and Magog uh, we're, we don't we're not thinking of this as a literal as, as literal armies coming up and marching it's th- that battle is a way of saying no matter what happens in the future God's people win and the same thing is true with the thousand years the number 1,000 is, is I know you're, you, you're know, you know that but the, the number 1,000 speaks of this complete, absolute, um, without reservation, uh, final victory. That it's, and so I think if you think of the thousand years as an image, it is an image of the absolute defeat of Rome and the absolute victory of the church. And so in that, in that sense, it's not really speaking about elapsed time at all. You could, I think the way you can connect it though with actual, with, uh, with the thing that it's standing for is that there was a day when the Roman Empire was defeated and the church is vindicated. And if, if you want to attach, um, you know, if, there's a, if we want to attach that image to any particular point in time, that would be the point in time. Um, it is a way of describing the utter fall of Rome and the utter victory of the church. And so, not in, not in the sense of the passing of actual time, but it, it is a reflection of that defeat that did take place in history. I mean, the Roman Empire did fall. The church is vindicated by God. That actually does happen in history. The thousand years is just an image of that reality. But I think in... The words you used about attaching it to that point of defeat, that I think I think it's fair to do that. I don't think I think that's um, because you're, you we're not looking at it as an actual uh, elapsed time period, but just saying it. There's a sense in which the 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 spiritual reality that is uh, that is being uh, recorded in this 
thousand-year complete victory. That does actually happen historically. It, I mean, there is a day. There is a day when Rome falls, and so to connect it with that moment in time, I, I don't think there's any. I don't think you're doing any harm to the imagery to do that, or to kind of, um, you know, to to make that comparison. I hope that's. It wasn't more confusing, but Eldon. Yeah, it's quite some time later in terms of the the final fall. You in Revelation, we may talk about this before we're done. Uh, I don't mean t- tonight, but before we're done with the class, you have a you have a type of victory. Okay, let me let me put it this way: the church that's reading Revelation as it's being written. When it's first public, when it's first circulated by John, and it goes out there during the time just up to the 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 beginning of the persecution by Domitian, and and Christians are reading it during that time of persecution. Well, Domitian himself falls. There is a there is a defeat of Domitian as a persecutor of the church after about nine years of his rule. So there is a sense in which there is some vindication early on. But the ultimate fall, uh, I don't remember the exact date, but we are talking in terms of, some, of centuries, not, not months or whatever. The, when, when you actually have the, the Roman Empire cease to exist as, as the empire. But uh, there are places, I think, intermediately where you see, um, where you do see, for example, the persecuting power is broken uh, prior to the end of the first century. That doesn't mean persecution has stopped, but um, you do have times, there is a back and forth in terms of the persecution of the church over those next couple hundred years, until the fourth century when Constantine becomes the emperor. But there is, there is that. Well, aren't we told that, that we will always be persecuted? Sure. In some sense. Sure. Right, and that's the relevance of the book. Because the book is... The principles of the book are true for the church in every generation. Because every generation of the church somewhere on the world is facing persecution. Today there are people facing similar persecution to this. Not here, not in the United States. There are people, as we all know, in places in our world today, that if they're true to Christ, they, they, they may very well be killed for it. And, and the principles here... Uh, apply and are true those world empires will come and go just like Rome did but the church will be victorious and that's the relevance of the book throughout history because the principles in this book are timeless and I mean they apply to the persecution you may face in your life uh, which may be much less than lethal persecution but uh, the, the message of the book is people who are true to the lamb will be victors I mean that's really pretty much it, isn't it? The Lamb wins, and I mean, it's the victory of the Lamb. It's the victory of, of Christ and His church over uh, any that would, uh, would strike her or oppress her. Okay, uh, we're now, uh, now we're into July, but uh, that's okay. No, I, no, I just, I appreciate the questions, because really, why go on? Seriously, if there's something that's not answered, we don't want to go on. I'm not in a hurry, as you can well tell, right? So, 
you may be in more of a hurry than me, so don't you worry. Because I, um, um, I was saying to my wife today, I said, well, I've got about a half a page of notes on, on, on 21, 1 through 8, but I've got about three pages of notes of introduction on 21, 1 through 8. Because um, she pointed out that that's my typical way of doing things. But uh, we're coming to an image, this fourth little snapshot of a new heaven and new earth that I think to, to completely comprehend the imagery that starts here and will continue in the fourth vision. We all know about the holy city coming up. It starts in, in verse 9. That's the fourth vision in the book of Revelation, starting at verse 9 and going into chapter 22. We get all of this imagery about a holy city, about a new heaven and new earth, about something that looks a lot like the Garden of Eden. These are very familiar images to us. And I think to properly understand them in the book of Revelation, we need to look at background. Um, Because as we have seen throughout our study, so often the key to understanding Revelation is understanding these images that fill the pages of the Old Testament. And if we can go back to the Old Testament and see how these images are used and what they mean, then we can understand how they're being used uh, in, in Revelation. So... I think in the notes, pretty sure here, it's page 60. And um, in the notebook, and the pages are, of course, on the back table. Uh, I want to start out by tonight by doing this uh, some background here on new heaven and new earth. Everybody's heard about the new heaven and new earth, haven't we? It's in the Bible. New heaven and new earth is in the Old Testament. New heaven and new earth is in the New Testament. Sometimes new heaven and new earth is written about in a very straightforward, factual manner. Sometimes the new heaven and new earth is written in a very apocalyptic and symbol and, and uh, a use of symbols. And understanding how those interplay is, is really important when we come to Revelation. So first of all, if you turn to Second Peter chapter three, maybe one of the most of the famous verses other than Revelation about new heaven and new earth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter here is writing about the end of the present order um, and the arrival from God of a new reality that's spoken of as a new heaven and a new earth. And he's saying in anticipation of that event, we should live godly lives while we await that day. Is Peter speaking symbolically or is Peter speaking in reality? He's speaking in reality. Second Peter, the epistle of Second Peter is not an apocalyptic work. It is, it is speaking very clearly and factually about things that are going to happen at the end of time. 
when Peter talks about the passing away of the present order and the inauguration of a new heaven and new earth, he's not speaking poetically. He's speaking, he's speaking of things that will happen. That this present world order will, will, be, will, will be taken away and a completely new heaven and earth uh, are created by God in which righteousness was dwell, will, will dwell. So this is not symbolic language. We're really familiar in the New Testament with a lot of language like this. Um, passages deal with resurrection, with judgment, with eternal life. And they're speaking about things that one day will truly, really, not symbolically, but actually happen. John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus says, the, day, the time is coming when the dead, those who are in the grave, shall hear the voice of the Son of Man, and they will come to life, some to a resurrection of judgment, some to a resurrection of life. That will really one day happen. Um, that, these, this, is, this, is, um, this isn't symbolic language. Uh, it is, it's literal language. 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the resurrection of the body of Jesus and says he's the firstfruits of of all of us, that our bodies will be raised from the graves, changed, reunited with, the, with our spirits to dwell in the presence of God forever. We who are left on the, on the earth when the Lord comes, our bodies will be changed, you know, from just what they are now to what they will be. Those that are dead, their bodies will be raised, changed, and we'll meet the Lord and we'll be with the Lord in the air in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. That's really going to happen, isn't it? One day that's going to happen. Uh, it's going to literally happen. Jesus is coming back and, and the dead will be raised. Philippians 3.21, when Jesus comes, Paul says that, that he, at his appearing, will transform our lowly bodies into conformity with his glorious body. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, that that will actually happen. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18, when Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep, you know, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, uh, the trumpet call, and what will happen? The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are on the earth will be joined to meet them in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Second uh, Thessalonians talks about the same judgment and, and the coming of angels to, to bring judgment on those who know not God nor obey, who, and who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. All of these passages are, are essentially talking about the same moment, the same events, and they're saying virtually the same thing. Jesus will return, the dead will be raised, the living will be changed, God will judge, the present order will be removed, and a new heaven and earth will come into view. These things, these passages are teaching, will literally happen. And we, that's, that's our faith, that's our hope. The resurrection of the dead, at the return of Jesus, new heavens, new earth, life forever in the presence of God. Now that language, these things that are true, that will literally come to pass, new heaven and new earth, and so forth, the dissolution of the present age uh, and, and, and creation, the language associated with those future events are used continually by the prophets throughout the ages to describe both God's judgment on nations as well as God's deliverance of his people. And what I mean what I'm what I'm getting at here is this 
that when you go back to the Old Testament and you read the, the prophets talking about God's judgment on Babylon and how essentially the world of Babylon is going to come to an end, Babylon has oppressed the people of God, God will destroy them. When the prophets talk about the end of Babylon, they use words that sound like the end of time. They borrow the language of the end time and those literal things that will happen. They take that very language and apply it poetically to a particular moment in time and a judgment of God. We've already looked at that several times in our study. Let me just show you a couple. All these verses are in your notes. In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. In fact, let's just, we'll just yeah, well, maybe 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. What would happen if all the constellations of the sky fell and the sun and moon ceased? What would happen to our little world? It would come to an end. This language, this language is borrowing language of the end of time. And if you look carefully, go back to the, the beginning of the chapter, or any, throughout the chapter, you'll see this isn't talking about the end of time. Uh, if, you have, if you have headings in your chapters in mind, that chapter 13 is called the judgment on Babylon. Chapter 13 of Isaiah is a, uh, an oracle against the, 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 the empire of Babylon, describing the fall of Babylon, describing the end of Babylon's world. When Babylon fell, did the sun literally stop shining and fail to rise? Did the constellations fall out of the sky? Of course not. We understand that this is poetic language. But we also understand that this language is rooted in things that will one day actually happen, essentially. There will be a time, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, where these things will occur. But here in Isaiah, that kind of language is used to say Babylon's world is coming to an end. Hang on to that just a minute and turn over to chapter 34, and then I'll, after I read this, I'll ask and see, uh, get your, uh, your thoughts on this. Uh, chapter 34 of Isaiah, verse 5. Sorry, verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. We sing a song about that, don't we? It's one of my favorite songs. The sky will roll up like a scroll. It is well with my soul. And, and one day we believe there's a sense in which that will happen. Second Peter chapter 3. But here, all the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Isaiah 34 is a judgment on the nation of Edom for its evil. And when the prophet describes the fall of Edom, he uses words 
like the sky rolling up as a scroll and the heavens rotting away. Look at verse 9. The streams of Eden shall be turned to pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. Eternal fire. When Edom fell, did an eternal fire descend upon the land that continues to burn to this day? No, it didn't. It didn't. We, we know that. When Edom fell, the sky didn't roll up literally like a scroll, nor the, uh, the streams turn into burning sulfur. Later, the chapter goes on to say that everything is completely desolate. The whole land is desolate. Everything is gone. Literally, those things didn't happen. But that language, which is rooted, again, in the, in the real end times, those images are powerful because they communicate to us the end of that nation, the end of that world. Uh, and especially when you th- the connection here between Babel and Isaiah and Revelation is, I think, helpful because um, the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament is, is parallel. We've already seen that in, uh, in Revelation. Uh, in, in chapter 18, the fall of, of Babylon, the great city that oppresses the people of God. But essentially, throughout the Old Testament, I'm only going to read these. There are bunches more. Um, we have this language that if you took it out of context, if you just read, if you just took up two or three lines, you would say, oh, that's the end of time. Because if this happened, this is the end of, this is the end of life as we know it. But then when you look in the context of Scripture, you recognize that, no, it isn't the end of time. God even says, no, this is my judgment on Babylon. This is my judgment on Edom. Essentially, you have these words that are, that are saying the world of this evil nation is coming to an end. Now, before, before I go on, does that, is that under, is, does that make sense? That, that this language that of what one day will truly, literally occur, that, that those kinds of images are then placed in different moments in history by the prophets to talk about the end of the world of a particular empire or a judgment. What God, what God will one day do in judgment, in reality, at the end of time, God does throughout history, but, it's not, but that, that's not the end of time. I think, I'm, I think I'm going off right now. I'm going to stop. I think I'm making it more confusing. Questions, comments, please. Uh, whether it's to say, uh, I, I get that, I don't get that, take another shot at it. Please, please I, I really appreciate some feedback. Or I'm just going to keep repeating this until I drive you all away. So let me know if, it, uh, if any of this is making sense. No head movements at all. That's not very helpful. When you and I sing um, one of my favorite songs, It Is Well With My Soul, and, and you sing, The Sky Will Roll Up Like a Scroll, what are you thinking about when you sing that? What moment are you thinking of when you sing that song? The last day, the return of Jesus Christ, and, what's, and why do we say, where does that language come from? Well, the language comes from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. 
the language of the sky rolling up like a scroll. If the sky were to roll up like a scroll, it's the end. Would we agree that if anything resembling the sky rolling up like a scroll and the stars falling from the heavens were to literally occur, it is the end of the world as we know it. Second Peter 3 says one day that's going to happen. One day, literally, this present reality will pass away and God will bring forth a new heaven and new earth. That will, that's what we're singing about in that song, isn't it? And what, what, basically all I'm saying is, we take that same language, or God does, we don't. God has taken that same language, put it in the mouth of his prophets, to talk about not the end of the, of the world at the end of time, but to take that same language and apply it to the end of Babylon's world, to the end of Edom's world. To use the language not literally in this sense, but poetically, to make the same point. To say that the sky rolls up like a scroll in Edom is to say Edom's world is gone. Now the reason we've got to get rid of the old world, whether it's in Babylon or Edom or Rome, is because we need a new heaven and a new earth. And you don't get the new heaven and new earth until the old, old heaven and the old earth are gone. So in the, in the language of judgment... For Israel to have a future after Babylon, Babylon has got to be destroyed. And then God's people can enter into a new life. So let me make this statement here and uh, see. Uh, when the, if the language of final judgment, like the sky rolling up like a scroll, uh, all of these things, the the perpetual fire, all of these images, if they're used to describe the fall of and the judgment against a nation, uh, for example, in the Old Testament, what kind of language is used to reflect the blessing that God will give to his people? If Babylon's, if Edom's burning like pitch forever, and if Babylon's, you know, the, st- the stars have fallen out of the sky... How does God describe Israel's life once these evil worlds are taken out of the way? Because he does in the prophets. He describes their new life once the old powers are taken away. And the images are just the opposite of these images of judgment. We're going to see a few of them here in in, uh, the passages that are written down. But things like this happen. In the middle of the desert, a river breaks out. And trees and stuff grow like crazy. And, everybody, and the mountains drop milk and honey. And people live to be a hundred years old. And no babies die. And there's no sorrow. And there's light in the city of Jerusalem. And there's no, not even need for a sun anymore in the city of Jerusalem. And the, mount, the lamb and the lion lie down together. And, and all, of the, all of the carnivorous predators eat eat straw like an ox, or hay, I should say, probably not straw, but, but what are we, what's, what, the, images, uh, the, the images that we find for blessing of God's people after their enemies are taken out of the way are images of a new heaven and a new earth. So that when Babylon's world, oh, sorry, I don't have it up there, when Babylon's world falls... Babylon in the Old Testament is the oppressor of Israel. 
Okay, it's great that Babylon falls, but, but what about Israel? Take a look at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. And, and get, try to get your mind around this. We're not reading here about the end of time. We're reading about the restoration of Israel after Babylon has been destroyed. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in at the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And he goes on to talk about life in Israel. Notice how Israel's world is described once Babylon is out of the way. There's now a new heaven and new earth. The language of Scripture when it comes to dealing with evil empires, is first of all the taking away of that old world. God's people are living in a world where they're oppressed by Babylon in the Old Testament. What does God do? God says to Babylon, the stars are falling out of your sky, there's no more sun, you are gone. The old world ceases to be. It's destroyed, figuratively speaking. Babylon falls. What of Israel? New heavens and new earth. Blessing. God is with them. God dwells with them. That's the imagery of blessing in the Old Testament. When God's people are being delivered from their oppressors, the way that they are blessed is described as a new heaven and new earth. If you would be so kind as to give me an extra five minutes tonight, um, I'll have a real short sermon Sunday. How's that? I'm not preaching, and I know it's going to be real short, so I can tell you that. I wouldn't trust me. I wouldn't trust me. Would you please turn to Isaiah chapter 60? Because this is where we just we need to just read just a couple more verses, and we'll be done for tonight, I promise you. But chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. And His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Notice now that Israel is is kind of being restored. The whole world's in darkness, but Israel's the light. And the nations come up to Israel because they're in the light. Stay in chapter 60 and look at verse 11. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that peoples may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. This, this, this new city that God's people live in, this new world, the gates are always open. What does that mean if you don't shut the gates of a city? What's the implication? There's no enemy. They're safe. It's security. When you describe a city in this passage that the gates are always open, it means there's no enemy outside. you got no worries. And, and notice that the wealth of the nations is brought into the city. And as we're reading these images, 
If you remember Revelation 21 and 22, it's going to start sounding familiar. Take a look at verse 18 of chapter 60. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous, they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified, the least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Do you hear some of these images that come out of, that you, can, you hear that they ring revelation to you? That so many of these, we're going to stop here because I promised you only five minutes, but the next passages in Ezekiel talk about trees growing alongside a river and the trees The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, 21 and 22. These images are there. What are these images, what are all of these images in the prophets talking about? They're talking about Israel's new world. Literally a new world, not not for them, literally. In, in, In the case of the prophets, we're being told the world of Babylon has now been destroyed Therefore, there is a new world, a new heaven and earth, a new reality. That's essentially what we're, what we're hearing. There's a new reality for God's people now because Babylon's been destroyed, because Edom's been dealt with. Now God's people, it's like they're living in a city where the sun never sets. And all of these images that we're going to find in Revelation are notice how they are applied in history to historical judgments of God and deliverances of God's people. And, um, and they're being used not, not as literal things, but as images of spiritual realities. What does it mean that there are trees growing in this city that if people from the outside come in, they can be healed by the leaves of the tree? You see, it's an image of people being able to come in to the, into the place where God's people are and find healing for their life. Find what they're needing in their life. There's, there's no evil. There's no, there's no darkness. There's no mourning. Uh, and all of these things are being, are being said symbolically uh, in, in Old Testament prophecy. So what we essentially have, and I'll stop here with like two sentences... In, and, and please, if you haven't already read through these passages, please, they're there in the notes, please read through them and take a close look at the, the references in Ezekiel uh, 40 and through 47 that are, that are listed there. Because essentially, I, what, what we're trying to say is, one day things are literally going to happen that we're all expecting and looking forward to. But God takes that language of the end time and he places it prophetically uh, at times in history to speak about the judgment of nations and the deliverance and rescue of his people. And in so doing, we'll speak, we'll take an evil empire like Babylon, we'll describe the end of Babylon's world, and then 
a new heaven and earth for his people. These are images that are relating the spiritual truth that the, the world of the oppressor is gone, Babylon is no longer a threat, and God's people live in a new reality in, in, their, uh, in their fellowship with him. They live in a, new, in, in, a, in a new joy and in a new fellowship with God. And the reason it's very important to understand the way that language is used is because what I'm going to be saying next week is that that's what's happening right here. That we're, when we're reading here, we're not reading about the end of time. Um, we're not reading about the events that will one day literally occur. We're still looking at the victory of the church over her oppressor in the first century. And you may remember in chapter 20 that the sea and the land have fled away. The world of Rome has been destroyed. Seven bowls of wrath have been poured out on it. That world is gone. So what for the people of God? What about the church? A new heaven and new earth. The church is triumphant and will... Uh, please, uh, if you haven't, uh, read these references and, and think about them. Feel free to email with questions or talk about any, any questions you have, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pick up there next week. Let's close with, with prayer. Father, your word is absolutely amazing to us. The way that you, Father, the way that you take ideas and truths and spiritual truths and language and you unfold it over centuries to teach us and to and the way that images are used uh, repetitively uh, so that we understand them when we come to them later in the Bible we understand what these images are all about help us to give thought to this father and to do our best to understand what it's like that for the church that's being persecuted by Rome when Rome is finally gone a new world dawns for them a whole new environment for them and help us father to understand that one day all of, these, all of these deliverances and hopes that we experience in a limited way on this earth, one day these things will happen in reality, in complete reality at the return of Jesus Christ and with the dissolution of the present world order and the creation by your hand of a new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. Dear God, that's our ultimate hope. And... Uh, until that day, help us to live in the reality of the new world you've given us in Christ. And uh, we thank you for those blessings, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.